0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov i'm greg blaze host of cutting the curd you're listening to heritage radio network broadcasting live from bushwick brooklyn if you like this program visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more
2: all right folks yeah it's monday and yeah it's 12 o'clock and yes it is time for what doesn't kill you food industry insights i'm your host katie Kiefer, and this is the heritage radio network and um i forgot to print out my joys and sorrows segment which probably is just well although i really worked hard at finding joys because for obvious reasons i think we all need a little injection of happiness um But, uh, unfortunately I can't remember what they they were because I mean, I'm just in that kind of a mood, but, um, I am. Uh, I did want to point out to you that airfares are lower than they've been in a long time. <laughs> I did notice that. I went on TripAdvisor, checked out the flights to London, Paris, Amsterdam. Yeah, where are we going? Yeah, any one of those three. Um, actually, anywhere in Europe is really pretty cheap right now, well under 600 bucks, even in December, um, which I thought was kind of amazing. And uh, that's round trip, folks. And um, so that was a joy. Uh, what was my other joy that I was able to think of uh, digging through the Internet today? Uh, oh, here was another. This was an interesting moment in my life. Like two days after the election, uh, I had been given a free ticket to go hear the amazing Bill McKibben at the New School. Now, after the election of Donald Trump as president, who has you know, famously claimed that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese... Um, Perhaps Bill McKibben was not the best choice for entertainment (laughs) now that we're facing, you know, sort of probably almost certain apocalyptic conditions in the coming decades. But anyway, uh, one thing that I really loved about Bill's talk was um, because of Trump's election, instead of sort of the doom and gloom hour about uh, climate change, what he actually talked about was organizing and civil disobedience and uh, how important it is to make your voice heard. Um, in the wake of what has happened to this country and what is really happening all over the world. We are not the only ones. Angela Merkel in Germany is under attack. Uh, The Australians are having their own problems with right-wing politics. Um, We saw what happened in England. So, uh, you know, I think it's time for people to really, uh, you know, get back to organizing, get back to, to listening and paying attention to politics and really making your voices heard when it comes to, Especially the midterm elections coming up in 2018. So that was, it was kind of a cool thing um, to listen to Bill. And then I, I get his newsletter, which is called 350.org, is the name of his organization. And uh, they had a piece of good news on their website, which is that the Kenyan government has now shut down a coal mining uh, project that was scheduled to become implemented in the coming six months or so because they failed to provide any kind of environmental assessment. And so the Kenyans just said, no, we're not doing it. And they are going for renewables. And that is also a joy. Um, So that's about all I can remember, except for the fact that there was a great letter to the editor from Monsanto in the New York Times yesterday, which if you didn't catch it, you really must. It was kind of hilarious uh, just because it was so it left out so much, um, you know, and it was just the, basically the same old, same old, well, we're, we're going to have to feed 50 billion people, you know, 9 billion more people. 9 billion people is what they're projecting for 2050. We're going to have to build, feed that many more people. We must have these crops that produce these incredible yields. Meanwhile, the reality is, and this was in response to the New York Times series on GMOs, the reality is, is that the crops do not produce a greater yield. They do not reduce the use of pesticides and herbicides. And... Um, and they, in fact, increase some of those products, which has led to the sorts of dead zone problems we've seen in waterways uh, across the United States and really around the world where these uh, products have been implemented. So it was kind of like I loved the fact that it was sort of a, a last gasp from Monsanto trying to persuade people that their product is actually necessary when, in fact, it is a failed technology and uh, needs to be um, reconsidered, if not completely thrown out. And so uh, we're going to go to a commercial break now and have a sponsor drop. But uh, I'm going to tell you who my guest is today, and that is the wonderful chef Evan Mallet, uh, who, with, along with his wife Denise, uh, run a fantastic restaurant in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, called The Black Trumpet. I hardly ever... Have chefs on this program as you probably Know um, but uh, I wanted Evan on for three reasons one He has a new book to promote two he's a member of Chefs Collaborative as am I and I always Want to promote the Chefs Collaborative and Three uh, Evan is A very outspoken and politically Involved chef and He has a lot to say about food policy and Food systems and I thought this would be a great place To talk about it so um, Stay tuned for Evan Mallet. he's coming Right up after the sponsor drop and, and we'll get on With the show
0: And this one's called Walking Like a Cowboy by Techstar. We'll be right back.
1: New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's
2: mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State,
1: certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State
2: Grown and Certified program at certified.ny.gov. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. And today I'm talking with great joy uh, to Chef Evan Mallet, who, as I said, with his wife Denise, is the owner and operator of the Black Trumpet in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and so therefore a New Englander like me. Um, Evan is also a three-time James Beard semifinalist for Best Chef in the Northeast. He is actively involved and sits on the boards of the Chef's Collaborative, Slow Food Seacoast, and the Heirloom Harvest Project, and initiative that brings together farmers, chefs, and educators to identify and restore a food system native to the greater New England seacoast region. Sorry, Evan. And welcome to the show, my friend. How are you?
1: I'm great, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled
2: to be on the show. Oh, I'm delighted. That's really, well, that's so lovely to hear that. And actually, when I saw your author photo, I realized that I do know you. I've met you several times, at Chef's Collaborative. Because well, I think
1: we've met at a couple of Chef's Collaborative. Exactly.
2: I, I just hadn't put the name with the face, but then when I saw your face, I was like, "Oh, great, <laughs> that guy!" So first of all, it's let's let's let's, let's hear about the book. It's called Black Trumpet: A Chef's Journey Through Eight New England Seasons. Um, what got you going on writing a book? I guess everybody has to do it once, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I you know, I think, I think we all have in us a, at least one book, yeah. And I hope I didn't burn myself out completely um, with this one because I, I have a whole lot more to say. Good. Uh, but it's quite an undertaking, and when you're trying to run a restaurant um, and a family and write a book, I will say that just about damn near tapped me out. So Yeah, I bet. Um, but it's, yeah, you know, it's it, it, an amazing project that really... Um, kind of happened organically, in fact, in part because of Chef's Collaborative. When I was down in uh, New Orleans at the Chef's Collaborative Summit several years ago, Mm -hmm. I shared a bus with uh, a woman who, at the time I wasn't aware of it, but she was a publisher of a well-known publishing house, and we were having a just a a back-and-forth rant about our food systems, and we were on a field trip uh, going to see an amazing farm. And uh by the end of the bus ride she you know, I was doing my usual uh you know, just verbal spewing and uh she said, You've got a book in you and I thought, Well hell yeah, I hope I do. Um but she, she was encouraging me to stop everything and start writing it then and there. And it didn't didn't quite work out that way, but a couple of years went by and uh uh you know, I I contacted an agent and pretty soon I was shopping around um the the proposal for the book that was um, uh, ultimately, ironically, rejected by the publisher who I had met on the bus. Oh, no kidding. I thought that was the lowest hanging fruit, but it turns out um, the best possible pairing happened where uh, Chelsea Green Publishing out of Vermont, uh, who are really just amazing uh, human beings to work with and committed wholly to geeks like me who want to pontificate about causes that matter to them, whether, you know, Sander Katz is on their uh, roster, and he's become, I think, really our new guru of fermentation in this country. And, oh, for sure. Uh, just to share, you know, a bookshelf with him is is amazing to me, and, and uh, so they've been a great uh, publisher to work with, and have been instrumental, I think, in getting the book in hands like yours, where that uh, gives me a chance to Extend the story a little bit um, into the media and talk about why it was important for me to write, which yeah. is your question. <laughs> so, um,
2: yeah, well, one of the things that you succeed in the book is bringing up, you know, the issues that you care about in terms of food system and and uh, and policy, um, along with the recipes. So how did you how did you make that work out? That must have been kind of a trick.
1: <laughs> well, they're they're kind of inextricable. Like I can't imagine. Uh, writing a recipe for anything without talking about the provenance of the ingredients. And as soon as you start talking about ingredient provenance, then you're talking about issues of sustainability. You're talking about, you know, the the climate. You're talking about all this potentially heated political commentary. And uh, so I I have a very hard time thinking about writing a menu without thinking about the politics behind Mm -hmm. where our food comes from.
2: Yeah, very interesting. Um, it says in your bio that you're part of this uh f- your your the, the uh the heirloom harvest project is um specifically addressing the greater New England seacoast region um and the food system therein. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm kinda of, because I'm a New Englander also. I have a you know, I have a house in Rhode Island, I grew up in New England, um so I'm always looking for ways to connect with that.
1: Sure. Well, you know, currently it's a very small grassroots operation. My wife and I started um, with another farmer, a horticulturist, and um, a seed-saving expert. And the, the goal of it really, it's sort of dovetailed from something called the Arc of Taste. Oh, which sure, is a from slow, Food, A yeah. Slow Food initiative uh, designed to promote biodiversity by uh, preserving some imperiled Ingredients, food ingredients, whether they're uh, animal, vegetable, or mineral—you know, there mm-hmm. are there are so many things out there that we don't realize are imperiled and have, at some point in our history in our heritage, been vital to our food. The, you know, the food shed that it was indigenous to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, you know, we use the term heirloom kind of as a catch-all, mm-hmm. uh, and there are very strict. Depending on who you're talking to, there there are. Uh, fairly strict definitions of what an heirloom is, um, you also hear the term heritage to describe breeds of animals. Mm-hmm. So through this organization what we've done is uh, we've created a about a three-quarter of an acre garden um, and we have a dedicated farmer in that garden who is planting and seed saving these rare strains and breeds um, of plant that we then uh, disseminate literally to all of the farmers in our area who choose to participate in this project, mm-hmm. and in addition to that, we're also uh, hosting in our garden a number of schools who come and uh, become—they they get educated by our farmer and by me and by the farm farmer who owns the land uh, that we have our garden on uh, about the importance of these ingredients, and uh, we record all of the data regarding. The climate year, uh, soil types, and things like that, so that we pass that on to the farmers who volunteer uh, to take some of the seed from that year's uh, harvest.
2: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It's
1: sort of, kind of holistic, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well um, Why did you write about eight seasons? Is that just because it describes two years, or or was it, was, was there something different no, in each no, season? That's
1: a great, great question. Um, That came about, actually, when I tried to write a menu in the previous restaurant I worked in. I was writing seasonal menus that were super clunky. The more I started sourcing locally, it just became difficult and awkward to try to fit dishes on a menu into those four seasons of the year. And what I learned was that if I break it into sort of a a sub-season of early fall and late fall, for example, uh, that's a six-week time period in which I'm able to more accurately capitalize on inv- available local ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so f- just from a you know local menu writing and food sourcing standpoint, it made sense to do that. And when I was writing the book, uh, having it organized in a way that was, you know, um, commensurate with the way i've always approached menu writing made perfect sense and uh the publisher loved that, and mm-hmm. that ended up becoming the subtitle.
2: Yeah, I think it's cool. I think it's a very cool idea, and I agree with you. It's like what you get in the beginning of the fall is far different from what you get at the end of the fall. I mean, that's for sure. Um, you know, when you're working in New-, New Hampshire and in the New England area, you were talking about like working with these different farmers and developing, uh, you know, heirloom seed stocks and disseminating those. Are you able to work with other chefs as well so that you can all kind of pair up together and? Um, potentially buy, you know, the entire harvest of XYZ product from a farmer or collaborate on buying a whole animal and sharing out the, um, the various uh, parts of it? Or is that just not a feasible thing to do in, in real restaurant world?
1: No, I'm I'm very proud to say that in the, the Seacoast region, uh, we have always done that. We've done that before we had a Chef's Collaborative chapter. Mm. We continue to do it through our local, which is what we call Chef's Collaborative chapters. Uh, so our uh, New Hampshire local has meetings and events where we discuss these very issues, and often because of that association when, uh, for example, a goat farmer has – Uh, you know, four goats coming to market, uh, we get on the horn with each other, whether it's through text or social media, Uh and communicate about who wants what parts, and that way we're really able to sustain in multiple restaurants a whole animal utilization program, and that's super exciting. So, you know, that's unique to just the animal part of your question, but it really extrapolates to a number of different areas um, in in our community, whether uh, it's volunteer gleaning programs, or uh, recently, uh, you know, we did 1,500 pounds of beet tops uh, to address the food waste issue and trying to bridge the gap between food waste and food insecurity uh, in the local food bank, uh, where we distributed those after we cooked them down uh, to 40 different food banks. Wow,
2: 1,500 pounds—that's that's a
1: lot. You, you can't do that, you know, single-handedly. You've got it takes more than a village of chefs. and uh, We're really fortunate that that's that's the kind of activism and awareness that we have in our community. So often in chef communities or in restaurant communities, I think, you have backstabbing, you have like, you know, deceit or lack of cooperation, egocentrism, like all those horrible things that have classically been associated with with chefs and restaurants. you know, I, we, I, we don't really have that. We have competition, and that's mm. something that hopefully lifts boats up rather than sinks them. And uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, has more seats in re- restaurants than it does human beings living in the <laughs> city. So, uh,
2: <laughs> that must be some fierce competition in that case, to put the fannies exactly. in your seats.
1: It's, in theory, it should not work. And yeah. uh, it certainly doesn't seem like a sustainable concept. Um, so while very few of us are getting rich, uh, we are a cooperative community of like-minded people, and that's completely awesome.
2: And so when you guys cooperate like that, and and actually to be honest with you, Evan, I, you know my experience of chefs is is kind of opposite to what you're describing, or at least in the last fifteen or twenty years, I feel like there's a much more of a spirit of of cooperation and. Um, You know, just general camaraderie than there probably used to be. I mean, I was in the food business for a long time myself, and and I think there was you know much more of that sort of competitive aspect back in the day. And I think ever since sort of the quote unquote progressive food movement started really um, gaining steam and picking up followers, I feel like chefs have become more and more engaged in working cooperatively with each other, especially in terms of sourcing the best kinds of ingredients because it's so hard to support farmers. Um, You know, unless you are doing that, because unless you can buy somebody's whole crop, then they can't they can't grow what you want. Right. You have to have like a bunch of chefs say, yeah, I want those, you know, heirloom cranberry beans this season. You know, please make sure that you grow them because there's five of us who want to buy them. Right. That didn't exist before. You're absolutely before.
1: right, Katie. Yes, and and I, what what you need to take into consideration is that I'm getting pretty old, so my <laughs> reference point. You are is, not. <laughs> my 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 reference point is is to the old school world of uh you know my way or the highway kind of chef, mm-hmm. um, which blessedly there are fewer and fewer of. I think and, so. uh, You know, you can really I think point to organizations like Chess Collaborative um, to you know, who have really shown the way uh, by I agree. by highlighting communities that are doing the right thing and then sharing those best practices uh, through some of our nationwide uh, networks and phone calls and things like that. Programming um, really distills a lot of sort of you know pie in the sky idealism but when you see it working on the ground mm-hmm. that's an amazing lesson uh that other communities can benefit from
2: absolutely i mean not to blow the chef's collaborative horn too loudly here but i must say i am always impressed um by the amount of work uh that they put into actually bringing chefs together for instance those chef power hour things you know you right. get on a phone on a on a group phone call and you learn you know, something from a bunch of experts about maybe a subject you're not that familiar with. For instance, I'm participating in one on Tuesday with the meat about the meat industry. Cause that happens to be my wheelhouse. But, um, but uh, I know there have been other really good ones uh, that talk about how do you collaborate? How do you, as a community, as a chef community, support better quality agriculture in your in your area? And to that point, um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what uh, some of the bigger challenges are to buying local in New England. I mean, you have got great, uh, terrific access to seafood there, obviously. Um, but aside from that, like, what are the challenges? Because it's not the longest growing season. It's not necessarily the greatest place for raising Uh, you know, animals, um, because we don't have so much, you know, so much grass, basically. How how do you guys overcome some of the seasonal issues uh, around buying in New England?
1: Well, again, you know, I've been doing this for a while, Katie, and Mm -hmm. the challenges get fewer and fewer every year for the most part. Cool. Um, We have more of a demand for local food, which has created more uh, local farms. And I I don't have the statistics to support that, but I can Mm -hmm. tell you, Uh, that the number of young farmers in southern Maine and the seacoast of New Hampshire is super encouraging. And uh, we're not seeing that same statistic nationwide. We're seeing a lot of uh, younger people less interested in hands-on agricultural systems. Um, So you know, policy is very attractive, I think, but actually getting in the dirt is Mm -hmm. Uh, a tough sell for young people today, and, and we in the in the Seacoast and and the coast of Maine are really fortunate that there's been this this uptick in uh, young energy around farming. So yeah. you know, I'm I'm trying to think of challenges, and yeah, of course, like you know, we have way fewer fish in the Gulf of Maine. You know, we have this amazing yeah. body of water right outside my restaurant from which. You know, uh, you could walk on the backs of cod 100 years ago, and now, um, you know, with a migrating cod population and essentially, you know, what appear to be really scary statistics about the decimation of our ground fish uh, fisheries, that's a challenge, you know. Yeah. A challenge of, uh, you know, just the issues of environment that are affecting our food system. Yeah. Um, so, I would say that's really the most glaring, but other than that, you know, you started your segment today uh, just before I was talking to you about some of the joys that are that are hard to find in this particular political climate, and uh, I just have no trouble looking around and finding the joys in our um, in our food system where we where we are, and more and more so all around the country, you know, um, when I am talking to other chefs through my role as uh, the local. Leader coordinator uh, for chefs collaborative. I see these little pockets of you know areas, regardless of whether that's a red or a blue state. You know there are pockets everywhere mm-hmm. of progress and of open mindedness and caring about food sourcing and procurement. It's just great, you know. So so I've got more joys than challenges right now. Although I you know I certainly would argue that. On a more global scale we're we're facing some pretty serious challenges
2: oh <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I was going to ask you, because I, I know that Maine, I talked to Shelley Pingree from Maine a few uh, weeks ago, and she was... Isn't she wonderful? And she oh. she described uh, an, uh, uh, some legislation that I think that, that they've passed in Maine and which is pending in Rhode Island that allows young farmers uh, greater access to purchasing land, which has been in places like Maine and especially in Rhode Island, because you know, land is kind of at a premium there um you know has really been a challenge to people getting into farming and i wondered if you had a sense of and and what just to describe the program basically they they buy the development rights from a farmer who wants to cash out and so yeah, yeah. and then the land itself is much cheaper or in maine they also have a big mentoring program going on and i wondered is new hampshire doing the same thing and are you aware of like vermont or you know connecticut yeah. any of the other states pursuing that I, I...
1: I don't know anything about Connecticut oddly enough um but I can say that Vermont and Maine have been uh thought leaders in this area mm-hmm. and uh New Hampshire is you know not necessarily quite at the same level but it, it is there are initiatives in place trying to encourage uh or b- break down a lot of those barriers that you referred to for young farmers um and you know I actually live over the the river from my restaurant, which puts my residence in the state of Maine, so (laughs) I get uh, uh, to—I feel very closely connected to the work of Shelley Pingree and for those in New York who may be less aware of uh, her role, she has has really made uh, farming, organic farming and the agricultural system in her state, but really nationwide. Um, a topic that that, uh, people are paying attention to. I feel uh, strongly that she is one of the, the most powerful advocates for good food in our entire country?
2: Oh, I, I completely agree with you. And believe me, they are few and far between. I mean, I went down to DC to do this interview with her. And um, <clears throat> first of all, I couldn't get over the fact that basically every single person I came across in the halls of the House of Representatives was a white male. Um, and then, um, secondly, I was also amazed at the lack of awareness or even interest in food systems um, because I went into a lot of different offices to try to find other people who wanted to come on the show. And uh, it was no easy task. I mean, really, nobody else has has answered to any of my queries. I mean, I have been sending out emails for weeks now um, and did not succeed in getting a single other House of, you know, uh, U.S. representative to come on the show. So um, but let's go back to your area. Let's talk about a little bit about community building. So when you talk about that, it's not you're not just building a chef's community, but you're also building sort of a consumer community, an eating community. Right. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, in
1: the book, I refer to uh, community building as, as sort of the linchpin of our restaurant's story. And that's certainly true from the perspective of me as a relatively naive chef 10 years ago opening my own restaurant without a very clear path toward what has become this flagship of sustainability. You know, it was never my intention Uh, to create that business model. It was people in our community who were coming to me and saying, you guys are sourcing Mm -hmm. a lot of local ingredients, or uh, do you realize that you're the only place in town serving any organic food, or do you realize that uh, all these other places are saying they're going to the docks to get local fish, but you're the only one who's actually getting local fish, you know? And so I – i was this I was very naive, and I thought maybe uh there were a lot of other restaurants and chefs who had a similar philosophy, but it was ten years ago, you know right around the i think the the tipping point of awareness uh about locavorism or uh local food sourcing and um that's that kind of how it evolved as as community development you know our messaging. I think has had an impact in our community, but it does also come in concert with the indoor farmer's market that we have that goes all winter long and five feet of snow on the ground. There is this oasis indoors at a nursery that thousands of people go to every Saturday and are surrounded by local food, you know, in the middle of December or January. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible. And that, again, was all about community building around food, and that was, a you know, there were four different organizations that got together. We call them the four food groups, Mm -hmm. and uh, they have been instrumental in creating programs and initiatives like that one. Um, So, uh, you know, my restaurant may be a mouthpiece, but there is a huge groundswell of support in our community for uh for our
2: local food system do you feel like that's changing the economics of new hampshire the way um you know the the increase i mean rhode island has become like a bit of a food mecca or is on its yeah. way to becoming that and um and so i and i feel like it's it's creating a huge uh boost to the local economy uh, both from the consumer side and from the agricultural side is that happening in new hampshire to the same extent do you think
1: you're making me want to run out and seek those statistics, because it would <laughs> sure be nice to know that there has been a, a physical movement of the dial in that direction. And I, I suspect, you know, just on, uh, just on hearsay, that there is a change. There is, you know, clearly there is a market uh, that has grown and that is supporting local food systems, and we still... Have a long, long way to go. I, I can't speak on behalf of the entire state of New Hampshire either, because we do have plenty of food deserts and mm-hmm. communities that are food insecure. So uh, the seacoast, I think, is a shining beacon and a mecca, as you called it, uh, similar to Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole rest of the state that um, you know has incredible potential, and yet still is not quite there. So. That's, that's what I would like to see happen in, in you know, the coming months and years is—and this is sort of part of the thinking through and the aftershock of this recent election. You know, how do we communicate with people who feel uh, threatened or uh, misunderstood or overlooked? These aren't necessarily all people who are going and eating fast food or processed food. But sometimes that's the only choice they have. So we, sure. you know, anytime we say it's about education, then we come across as elitist. And yeah. uh, I think that what my wife and I have been talking about in the last few days is, well, how do we open up that conversation and make it be a healthy two-way conversation uh, without you know anyone infiltrating any ranks or uh, coming across as elitist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that yet.
2: Yeah, um, right. That is, that is the it. problem. <laughs> That really is the problem. I mean, that was one of the questions I I had for you. It's like, as a nation, we don't spend a lot of time eating meals together, and very few people still cook from scratch. So, you know, and you were involved in the Plate of the Union initiative, which I, you know, I did a lot of interviews around that uh, on this program, and it just fell flat on its face. It was so disappointing to me. It just was, you know, despite everyone's best efforts to publicize this, to get people involved... Um, Food policy and just food itself is, you know, apart from a certain swath of the population, um, doesn't really seem to be penetrating. And I, I think, you know, it's it's households that are not necessarily the food insecure that I'm talking about even, um, who do have fewer options. I'm talking about regular middle-class people who just don't care that they are buying, you know, chicken McNuggets for junior and, and you know, pizza slices for senior. And you know what I mean? Like the way people feed their families now is like everybody can choose what they want out of the frozen food aisle. Um, And I know I'm making a gross generalization, but that is kind of a lot of what we're talking about here when we talk about making a transition from – buying prepared and processed foods to actually scratch cooking. And um, and why do you think people are so indifferent to this? Like, why don't they care that food doesn't taste better and isn't better for you? I just – I don't get it. You know what I mean? What do you think about that?
1: I think they're, they're living these kind of suffocated lives uh, where they don't have the bird's eye lens on what – in what's happening to our bodies and what's mm-hmm. happening to our culture. And if you look at the the line that food goes through from inception to consumption, uh, it's really impossible to me. And I, I, this is, again, a conversation that I'd love to have be open on both sides of the spectrum and be able to, to like, sit down, look someone in the eye and over a meal that's properly prepared from really great ingredients, have this very frank conversation of how hard was this to do? What are the barriers to producing a meal like this for you and your family? And how can we address that? You know, and I don't, again, have the answer to that, but I do know that we all need to eat. We all need food. Um, Most of us, when we're told that food is bad for us, uh, will somewhere a seed will be planted in our head that we need to change the way we eat. Very few people actually act on that, and I think that is similar to your argument about, uh, you know, food policy and why, you know, it may have fallen flat on its face with that particular uh, campaign. It's, it's not something people want to hear. Like, they, they ingest it, but they don't digest it. And um, I didn't mean for that to be a culinary metaphor, but it worked out pretty well. Yes, excellent. Um, <laughs> so, you know what I mean? We're not assimilating that information. It's just sort of hovering. Maybe we feel guilty if we pull into the drive through and maybe we feel guilty if we're filling our shopping cart with cans in a supermarket. Um, but it's, it's time that we get through the people, we get that message across that, the idea of safety and comfort that you have is killing you and statistics aren't good enough you know we can point to the one in three uh, children who are gonna have or one in three humans who are gonna have diabetes mm-hmm. uh, type two in what is it 2020 or something like that yeah um, and that's that's a shocking statistic that we should all personalize we should all you know I think people hear that and they say well phew at least I'm not one of the you know, I'm not one of the the one. I'm one of the two. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, and it's just that inability to, to look beyond the immediate horizon. And that, I think, affected the outcome of our election. I think it affects uh, the outcome of America's future. Um, so it's a really big deal. And, Katie, if you know a way that I can sit down and have a conversation with someone who voted for Donald Trump, and get them to talk about food and food issues, then you've got my vote for the next election.
2: (laughs) I know. I mean, the outcome of an election like this, you know, does inspire. And I know I'm not the only one to think of yourself. I think I should run for office. I don't care which one. (laughs) What I mean, it's like anything would be better than this. You know, my freaking cat would be better. (laughs) It's so horrible,
1: and just getting worse and worse. That level of activism is where we have to be going now. Yeah, I really strongly that we have to engage. Well, because the the whole everything I've done up to this point, including writing what I think is a pretty good book, is pontificating. It's White Tower stuff, you know. Yeah. And if we got to get out of the tower, I think we got to get on the ground. We got to be talking to each other. Mm-hmm. um as equals and i don't think that's really happened yet so
2: yeah Unfortunately, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I do feel like, uh, you know, so many of these conversations are siloed. You know, it's like it's, you know, that much overused metaphor, but it really is apt. It's like everybody's in their little group and including people in the food movement who I also feel, I'm sure you saw that uh, that piece in Forbes a couple weeks ago uh, by Nancy Hohengarth about the great divide between the the food, progressive food movement. You know, like the people who who say, you know, well, if we don't get rid of the meat system or, or commercial agriculture altogether, then we've Totally failed, and then the other side that says, "Well, but we're making these incremental changes, and they're really important, and they're totally vital." And you know, there's kind of this dichotomy in the food movement itself about what's important and what what works and what doesn't. And uh, I feel like what you're talking about now in terms of how to address. Just the, you know, the everyday guy, you know, who has uh, saves you know, a basic middle class income and limited time and, uh, you know, limited resources for scratch cooking or shopping or whatever it takes to get that going. I mean, I think, you know, there has to be a way of of somehow um, bridging that gap, because I think a lot of people think that 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 the ability to make food themselves is kind of just a step too far. And until that well, attitude is has been properly squashed, I think it's going to be very hard to make better agricultural uh, policy a real, um, you know, a reality for the rest of you know, for the rest of the country.
1: Right. And you can't ask someone to go out and read the Farm Bill. Um, I know because uh, it's my bedside table reading and I still haven't gotten through it all. Uh, right, they're going to be, a be doing of- a new one. <laughs> exactly. Right. By, the time, by the time I finish it, it'll be moved. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, I think if you've read one, you've got you can kind of sit back on your laurels and just cherry pick the rest of it. But um, to talk about activism, I was going to I wanted to hear about whether or not you have any engagement with local politicians in New England. And, you know, and what what kind of message do you want to send to a local politician? Like, how do we address our legislators on the local uh, level uh, in terms of trying to push them towards uh, policy decisions that might benefit um, might be beneficial both to farmers and also, say, for instance, to low-income communities that have uh, little access to fresh fruit and vegetables or or just healthy foods in general?
1: Yeah, well, we do. Uh, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Senate race we just had in New Hampshire. Um, oh, that well, was he, Maggie Hassan, right? Yeah, it was um uh, and, and, and his, yeah. Maggie Hassan. And she Maggie won. Maggie Won won that race by less than a thousand votes. Oh my God! And we had her. We hosted her in the restaurant on a couple of occasions, mm-hmm. um, you know, for fundraisers and just to draw attention to her campaign mm-hmm. in what we saw to be a very heated, um, pivotal election. And uh, knowing that we even did that to me was the most gratifying result of the entire. You know, an election where there was actually zero other <laughs> results. right. but the uh, the involvement that we had as a restaurant and as business owners in our community uh, with the uh, senator elect was potentially pivotal. like that we really I think made a difference. And yeah. whether that was three votes or five votes when it's less than a thousand that decides an election, it all matters, you know? yeah, and so, Yes. As a restaurant um, and as business owners, uh, Denise and I have made a concerted effort to try to engage our uh, local political leaders, uh, including now Maggie, who uh, being in office in a Congress where she will have a minority voice, um, Mm -hmm. it's really important that she speak as loudly as possible on behalf of our state and our uh our country and what we're doing with a broken food system,
2: yeah that's thrilling, yeah, I was really pleased when I saw that she won that election that was that was really major and thank you for your part in that evan um uh, well. <laughs> well let's we we don't have too much time left but um since we have um since we have a uh a well let's let's talk about the food system just for at, at large where where do you feel like? You know the change is is both most feasible and also most necessary. Is it to address food insecurity? Is it to address, um, you know, industrial agriculture? Is it to address food safety? I mean, there's so many places where we have a problem. Um, is it access? I, you know, I don't. I, one sort of doesn't really know where to begin with this. And wh- I wondered what your thoughts were on that.
1: Well, I, I have. A thousand, um, but yeah, to try to pick a couple here, you know, I I do think that uh, we need to be able to address issues of scale um, Mm -hmm. and to think in terms of decentralizing food distribution at the same time. Mm -hmm. When you look at, uh, you know, a truly regionally biodiverse food system, it is entirely possible, and we're proving this uh... all around the country right now it is entirely possible to have a self subsisting food system and economy based around food in very remote areas and if we can do that then what we have to be able to address is how do you do that in urban areas and metropolises and how do you guys do that in in brooklyn you know there are uh, there are models that we can now point to that are working And as soon as we can break from this 70-year-old tradition of post-industrial centralized food, then we're going to, I think, see that there are economies of scale that are going to work. So that's just a mindset change. And how do you do that? You know, you do that through a revolution. And right now, clearly, uh, we're facing some kind of revolution. So uh, whatever, however that Materializes, um, I would really like to see a, a, a country made up of less interdependent uh, regional food systems.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I, you know, we also
1: have this fairly massive problem of uh, our fishing fleets dominating the fishing industry, and they are the ones out there in a virtually um, you know mafioso position of uh, strong arming the smaller fishermen uh, out of their out of their jobs and when you have regulation such as we do on uh, ground groundfish and uh, all of the the wild stock left yeah then you know the vast majority of that is going to people who are not sustainably fishing you know they are meeting their quotas and their uh you know they they're kind of manipulating the system but at the same time there there's no room for the responsible whether it's hook and line or uh long line fishermen uh up and down our coast to uh, to subsist and and, and thrive uh-huh. uh that you know is i live in a community that was built on fishing and now we have uh, four boats that are commercial
2: fishing boats left. Wow, is that right? I had no idea. Because, you know, Rhode Island, of course, same thing. State economy, was, was that was one of the three pillars of the state economy was the fishing industry. And, uh, you know, definitely uh, since the 70s, that has dwindled and dwindled. And, but we certainly have a lot more boats than that. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. shocked by that because Portsmouth I always thought of as totally a fishing community. That's horrible. Uh, that's yeah, a whole other show, for Evan.
1: Three hundred and something years.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. That's a whole other show, my friend. That's <laughs> we should actually do that. I, I would love to do that. A show on um on fishing industry and then and have like maybe the guys from Sea to Table, the Dimmons, or you know, Tim Fitzgerald from Environmental Defense Fund, and we can all talk about uh, how the Catch share program is working or not working. Um but for my last question to you, my friend, before I, I let you go, and um, and most importantly, allow you to promote your book, your restaurant, and anything else you want to do <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: we, we, we better just skip your last question
2: <laughs> we've got five minutes that's a lifetime in, in radio believe me um i wanted to ask you where you know to, to go back because what we've talked a lot about just to sum up here is is we've talked a lot about how to engage people who are not engaged you know whether it's just you know whether it's people who just don't care about their food, whether it's people who don't have access to food, whatever the issues are, and and who continue to support um, fast food, processed food, and industrial agriculture, and that includes the rep- many people in the Republican Party. How do we how do we connect with them? How do we create some sort of um, Awareness of, you know, the damage that the current system is doing both to public health and to uh, the environment. Like, where where is that sweet spot where you're not saying, oh, shame on you for buying processed foods, shame on you for shopping at McDonald's, um, but at the same time making, you know, as you pointed out, scale is an issue, so everybody thinks, well, I can't buy that because it's so expensive. Um, so it's like, I don't know how to, like... Bridge the gap, but in that conversation between between what we think is better and uh, what people are afraid to try, I think is maybe the best way to put them.
1: Yes, well, I think I think I have the answer.
2: Okay, are you ready? I'm ready, dude.
1: Okay, Grown ups are impervious. We are uh, we have too much armor. So the answer, the chink in that armor for all of us is our children, nice. and I feel strongly that based on my own experience working in classrooms, talking to kids with my very own children who are amazing advocates for uh, a renewed food system, there is an open mind that can infect the closed minds of their parents. And it's happened very much in, in you know, I'm, I'm a carnivore through and through uh, because I, one of the things I talk about in my book is if you can't look your food in the eye uh, and then eat it, then you should not eat food that has eyes. Um, <laughs> right. It, um, and I I can do that with a clean conscience, uh, mm-hmm. knowing where that food came from. My son made a decision when he was 11 years old that he couldn't do that anymore. And uh, that was a really pivotal moment, not just in the life of this young man, but in the life of our entire family. Yeah. All of a sudden, uh, you know, with all of the the argument that most people make about you know not cooking local food or making food from scratch is that it's really time consuming and yes it is but it's also really time consuming uh, to make dinner for yourself and then have to make a vegetarian dinner for your son or in most families make dinner for yourself and then have to heat up some mac and cheese for a child who won't eat anything else mm-hmm. you know so when i get in front of a classroom and i'm talking about the ingredients in their Smoothie or their pasta, you know, made from things that we grew in our garden, Um, you would think they would be drifting off and going to La La Land or thinking about their (laughs) football game. (laughs) But the exact opposite has been the result. And I hear back from parents over and over again that they tried a recipe, uh, you know, that we talked about in class or they used an ingredient like, you know, it's not even like kohlrabi or something, you know, relatively uh, esoteric. They Sometimes it's like a grapefruit, or you know, yeah. not even necessarily something local, but just something that they hadn't thought of right. uh, preparing before. And so that is like this incremental step that I think we can we can make um, in in getting through to people who are obdurate about this idea of cooking clean, healthy, local, sustainable
2: food. I love that, and I love that you used the word obdurate. I love that. <laughs> so now we uh, we do have to wrap it up because it's now twelve fifty, which is five minutes over my limit. And um, and so, Chef Evan Mallet, tell us the name of your book. Tell us about your website. Tell us about your restaurant, and tell us about any appearances you're going to be making in conjunction with your book, Chef's Collaborative, or any other organization that you represent.
1: Excellent. That's a lot in a short time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Black Tombs Chef's Journey through eight New England seasons uh, by Chelsea Green. It hit. Uh, bookstores about a month and a half ago. It's doing really great. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping to, you know, I'm doing a lot of local stuff right now and, and book signings and talks and uh, pop-ups and things like that. But I will be down uh, in the city for a green market in April. So uh, mm. anyone listening in the New York area uh, hopefully can come out and, uh, and get a hold of a book or just chat about any of the rants that are, uh, you know, uh, with between the covers of that book—it's
2: a great Christmas present, folks. I hate to say it, but that season is coming upon us. So I mean, come on—who doesn't want to read this it book? It
1: really is. I won't argue with that.
2: That's right. Um, so um, I guess we can wrap it up. You don't have a website, right? Or do you? You have the chef. You have yeah, Black Trumpet's uh, website for sure.
1: Right. So you can go to Chelsea Green Publishing um, mm-hmm. and look up the book there. You can find it. Uh, you know, in the, dreaded, in the dreaded world of Amazon, but it's oh, yeah. also being carried by a lot of small bookstores all around the country. Um, right. I was just out in Portland, Oregon, and Powell's had it there, which, of course, I think they have every book, but they do. uh was happy to see mine among them, and um, yeah, anyone coming to New England, uh, Black Trumpet is, is right downtown in Portsmouth-on-the-Water, spectacular, romantic, beautiful little restaurant that we've re- worked really hard to uh, to create, so um you know, anyone stopping through, feel free to come in and I'm usually in the kitchen, so say hi.
2: Great. Yeah, absolutely. Drop my name. No <laughs> Evan, thank you. thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you to my sponsor, New <laughs> New Oh God, New York State. Oh, Dave.
0: Grown and Grown certified. Grown and
2: certified. Thank you. New York State Grown and Certified Program, um, which is a great boon to farmers all around the state. And uh, so thanks to them. And uh, thanks, as always, to my engineer, Dave. And uh, we'll see you next week with another great show. Thanks for listening, peeps. Bye.
0: <laughs>